Do you have an Apple product? Maybe an iPhone or a MacBook? Then go to Apple Podcasts now and review You Hate to See It. We would really appreciate it. Reviewing us helps get our podcast out there and helps us find guests. Just search You Hate to See It and give us a review now. All right, welcome back to You Hate to See It, everyone, where you hate to see it, but you love to hear it. Uh, my name's Adam. Jeff. I'm Nick. And uh, this week, we are blessed with Mark Scheffler on the podcast. Mark Scheffler, you might know him from The Last House on the Left, the original. So welcome to the podcast, Mark. Thank you. And uh, to the three of you, thank you so much for having me. Um gives me purpose in life when I do these podcasts and so uh, I'm, I'm grateful that you've contributed to my uh, self-esteem for today yeah <laughs> uh very glad to do it um like what the fuck was that oh, cookie. <laughs> I was trying to be <laughs> subtle and then it fell out <laughs> get it out get it out yeah. All right. So like I said at the beginning, Mark, you you were in uh the last house on the left, the 1972 version. Yes. Um the most important question I have for you in regards to that movie at like, I think it's like, it's your very first shot in the movie. Correct. Can you rib it? Rib it. Oh, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know why I like, saw that. that. That was, that was just a knee jerk rivet. You want the real rivet? Yeah. All right. I have, I have to, I have to get into character here a second. Because that's what actors do. They process, right? All right. I think I did this in the film. Um, Ribbit. I don't feel comfortable. Damn. I'm uncomfortable with that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was very uncomfortable watching it. The whole movie makes you uncomfortable, uncomfortable. yeah it's good it, it is good it's just it didn't make it uncomfortable it'd be it wouldn't be what it is yeah yeah i i just remember i i had my little notepad out taking notes while i was watching the movie and i got to like that scene popped up and i was like ask him to rib it like that's because that was like <laughs> yeah sure <laughs> um on that movie so I didn't realize, I, mean, I, I saw it, but like watching it, it didn't feel like a Wes Craven movie to me. Oh. Like I'm, I, when I think of Wes Craven, I think of more, um, more slasher just because of Nightmare on Elm Street and stuff like that. And let's, put th- let's put things in perspective. When Wes made that movie, he wasn't Wes Craven. He yeah. was a guy named Wes making a $93,000 a drive-in movie. <laughs> yeah. So- so yeah, you, you have to you have to look at it from from the real time uh, uh, circumstances. Uh, but he had a, he he was a sweet, talented man, and and um, he had a very even then uh, he he had a very clear vision of what he wanted to do and the way he wanted to do it. And uh, you know, he pretty much ended up with what what he had had envisioned. Yeah, I was when I was watching it, I'm like I was I was trying to you know put myself back into the 70s because um to try and like 
you know, watch it with those eyes, not with our eyes of what we have now. How do you yeah. feel like the like the horror, like creepy film genre has changed since well, then? Because I watched it, and I was like, you know, it's it's a creepy movie, but it's not like scary, like compared to what we have now. Right. Well, again, you, you put it in time perspective, right? Back in uh, in 1971, when when it was released, 72, um, it was the first of its kind, mm -hmm. you know, because no one had ever. Wes's whole thing was he he set about to take uh, uh, human on human violence, and instead of portraying it as uh, on on camera. Uh, um, as the result of the craft work of effects artists and uh, uh, cinematographers and uh, lighting people and sound effects people, he decided he wanted to throw it in people's faces and bring it down stage center and so that people could get a chance to see what it really looks like. Mm -hmm. He was upset, as I recall, that a lot of the coverage of the Vietnam War was sanitized. Uh, even the, the, the movie reel shit that they did that they brought back was sort of sanitized and he said that's that people will continue to be violent and will continue to act like it until they see what it's really like so he found the virgin spring uh, ingmar bergman's uh, adaptation of uh like a 12th century swedish folk story and he adapted it uh and, and he was never shy about that you know he mm -hmm. told everybody that's where it came from and I think, you know, uh, uh, casting people like like David Hess and Freddie uh, Lincoln and Jeremy and people like and me who who had, you know, some ability to do the job, but yet weren't well known, added to the, the patina of the movie. You know, it added to the fact that you, you couldn't recognize us as actors. You couldn't you couldn't throw yourself a life preserver. Uh, you know, you watch you watch a. Uh, uh, Anthony Hopkins is Hannibal Lecter, right? Mm -hmm. I have a Hannibal, remind me of my Anthony Hopkins story. Okay. Uh, uh, so, uh, uh, but, you know, you, it's, it's, it's different. You know, you, you can, no matter what he does in the movie, you can throw yourself a life preserver and say, well, that's Anthony Hopkins, yeah. right? Now, at some point, if you, if you get too fucking scared, man, you go, that's Anthony Hopkins. But having people that nobody knows and then shooting it like like it's looking through a window into a, a sort of documentary where some really bad shit is happening. That kind of adds to the suspension of disbelief factor of it. So how did that role like affect you in your personal life? Like after the movie, like were people terrified of you, even though you were probably the only bad guy in the movie that had a heart and a soul um <laughs> yeah you were bad because of the environment you were in more than yeah. you were a bad person all right so i dropped out of college in 1969 i was going to a, a lsu louisiana state and i actually went to school with david duke one of america's foremost civil rights advocates um so uh i went became an actor and and, and i had three life goals when i left college i wanted to smoke as much weed as possible i wanted to uh, sleep with as many different women as possible. And um, I wanted to uh, make just enough money to afford the weed and the women. So <laughs> the entertainment industry seemed to be perfect for me. 
so to answer your question with that, that background, the question was, how, what was it like for me afterwards? Well, I got sent back to my hometown, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, uh, uh, to attend a premiere uh, that, at a theater in downtown. And while I was back there, uh, several uh, girls from my high school graduating class who was scant three years earlier, wouldn't give me the time of day, were suddenly offering me a whole lot more than the time of day. And uh, um, I remember being with one of them uh, and, and uh, first time in my life, I was able to like be having sex with somebody and yet think about something else. Uh, I, I remember being with someone and I said, uh, I, I think this is a good career choice. Yeah. <laughs> it's okay. working. I'm down. Yeah, this is it. All right, this is encouragement, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so that, that's the answer to your question. I, I've been a very lucky person uh, my, my entire career. I, I've been, you know, I've been one of those people who, uh, even though I had some down times, everything sort of worked out. And everything, uh, you know, between the horror film, my comedy career, my writing, my personal life, everything sort of just, you know, uh, it's pretty chill. So, yeah. It seems like that's the common theme with like the like actors we've talked to, like between you and Larry, like Larry's also extremely appreciative of just being able to have the chance and have the career that he had. Dude, I'm, like, like, I'm 72 years old. I've been married twice, raised three children from birth to adulthood, all of whom are incredibly productive and successful people. I've never had a real job. Never, <laughs> <laughs> I, got a, I got a house in Indio and an apartment in LA. I drive a brand new car. I travel and go where I want. I do what I want. I have a beautiful wife, a Colombian woman, been married to for 17 years, and I've never had a real job. So you know, I, I look back at my, my goals, right? I told you my three goals when I left college. So, you know, there are times I look at myself in the mirror and I realize that, that I have greatly exceeded my own expectations. Yeah. <laughs> Especially now, like, because you, you wanted to, one of your goals was to smoke as much weed as possible. How did you ever? In California, man. I live in yeah. California. I, I can't like over smoke weed here. It's just like, sometimes I'll tell you what I do do out here. There's sometimes, I don't do it as much in Indio now, but I do it in LA because there, there's a, a dispensary like on, in every little mini mall. And uh, given that I, I lived in the old days, you know, when, when I'd have cops in Central Park would like smell a little Colombian joint and be chasing me down. Uh, um, if I see a police car, an LAPD car in a parking lot of a mini mall that I know there's a dispensary there, I will walk up to those cops with the most confused look on my face and say, excuse me, officers, you guys know where I can buy any marijuana around here? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, it's a green door in the corner there. Hey, thanks a lot. I'll see you around. <laughs> I, it never gets old either, man. It just never fucking gets old. <laughs> so... I, I know you guys didn't share any scenes together, but I was shocked um, I, when I saw Mari Cove in the movie. Like, did you guys, what, did you ever talk to him or meet him? Or because you guys didn't, yeah, you guys didn't have any scenes together. We're, we're so. good friends. Oh, okay. <laughs> when, I first, when I first got to LA, the, the way, I, the, the whole story of how I got to LA is a whole, is like a real story. And, and I could, I'll start and tell you, but I, I'll, I'll leap forward and backwards. When I 
got to LA within the first couple of days, Marty was already here. Uh, he called me up because he knew I was coming and he picked me up in a, a Mercedes, small Mercedes convertible. And uh, um, I don't know if you guys ever saw Woody Allen's movie, Annie Hall. Uh, uh, there's a scene where Tony Roberts uh, uh, picks Woody up in California in a car and drives him around. Woody gets sick and gets nuts, but, but that's not what happened to me. But Marty picked me up at my office on Melrose Place and, and drove me around to every studio. He showed me, took one day, drove me to every major studio and every major network because he wanted me to see the, the traffic pattern. You know, he wanted me to, yeah, Marty and I have been friends, good friends since the last house. Yeah, I, I saw, when, like, he popped up on the screen and it took me, like, a bit. Like, it took me, like, two or three scenes of his to be like, his... Is that the guy from Cobra Kai? Because I was like, it looks just like him, but I haven't seen Karate Kid in so long. So I'm like trying to go out because I just finished uh, Cobra Kai a month ago. So I was like, is that him? Oh, my God. Like, because I see he was funny in this movie and I only picture him as an asshole. So <laughs> you, see, you see his that, that character of John Cleese that he plays in yeah. Cobra Kai. That, that's a testament to Marty's acting. Martin Cove is one of the three or four sweetest people I've ever met in my entire life. Okay. <laughs> like 100%, he is 180 degrees away from that character. <laughs> Martin Cove would no more hurt another human being than he would hurt himself. He is, he is the sweetest guy and was always, right? Always. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. Just because I've, I like, that's the only character I've ever seen him play. And so this was just a complete shock to me where he plays like a goofy cop. And like, yeah. What? He's like a Barney Fife the whole time. Yeah. I'm like, yeah. what is this? Yeah. Yeah. And, we his, have, and his black have, hair. Yeah. We didn't have any scenes together, but we all hung out together. Okay. So in the like uh, preparation for that role, um, I felt like there was backstory based off of your acting like there was history with that character did you create or did you and Wes work on stuff or what, did he give you something of like this is the prequel to the movie basically like here's yeah. what you got one of the things I did on my own was uh, let me I'll give you the build-up one of the things I did on my own was uh there there was uh, you know you know you know the movie with Al Pacino called Panic in Needle Park I, I do not know I don't you guys ever so. know that Okay, so while I'm talking to you guys, one of you may want to look it up. Panic in Needle Park was a movie with Al Pacino that, that uh, took place in New York City at, at, in, a, in an area that was populated by uh, heroin junkies and heroin addicts. And it's up on the Upper West Side. Um, and uh, I went to Needle Park and just hung out. And I watched Mannerism. And I watched, you know, I kind of like absorbed it. Um, that, that was one of the things that, that uh, I did in this step. And the other thing was that David Hess and I met about a month before we started shooting. And we became instant friends. And in our uh, journey of becoming better friends, I believe that, that uh, uh, for the 
that 30 days, we spent every one of those days together getting to know each other. Mm-hmm. So when you say there was a backstory, we came into the movie with the, the kind of seed of a, of a dynamic, right? Of, mm-hmm. of a person dynamic. And then I guess without intellectualizing, because, you know, I could be honest and say I didn't do that. I guess our instincts were to just adapt, you know, the, the uh, kind of overview that we'd created in the last month, uh, uh, history to the, to the film so that we didn't seem like strangers to each other. Yeah, I was, I was, uh, well, I, I was watching it with my fiance and I mean, and so your fiance. Yeah. <laughs> she, I mean, she she got one look of your character and was like, God, if he was 30 years younger, like, <laughs> look, it's paying off still. Yeah, <laughs> apparently. I am married to a woman who's like 17 years younger than me. Okay. <laughs> and and she's beautiful. And she's a former ballet dancer. So trust me, I'm doing OK. I, <laughs> um, your fiance yeah. is not shit, Adam. Yeah, <laughs> this is basically what yeah. he's saying. Get fucked. Um, so we were watching this, the movie together and she was, uh, it was interesting to see the, the two different dynamics that her and I have when watching the movie. Cause I mean, I mean, it's very uncomfortable, especially for her to watch that movie for all the things that happen to those two girls and what's done to them. And then for me to come in there and just like, I'm watching it. And then like she makes comments about that stuff of what's making her uncomfortable and things like that. And I'm making comments of like, wow, like I really think he like fleshed out his character well in the back like <laughs> beforehand. Like just our two different worlds where like I have that uh, film you're critical looking mind. At it, you're looking at it through the lens of a film student and she's looking at the lens of somebody who wants to like run out of the fucking room. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Doesn't want to be murdered. Yeah. yeah. So when you were filming those scenes like what was that like doing some of those uncomfortable like where you have to be an asshole scenes you know in my character he he was bifurcated all the time so Mm -hmm. uh it, it it was a kind of you know fun for me to 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 be a character who was being pulled by two strong forces at the same time Mm-hmm. uh it, it gives you it it, it kind of gives you some curves and it gives you the opportunity as an actor to allow the audience to, to see your process you know to see what you're going through because not everything in life is black and white uh and sometimes you got to make choices and you know decisions need to be made and people who are who are weak and uh you know uh pretty much victims um, somebody that's a that's a horrible place for a person like that to be because they're incapable of making decisions because people are always making decisions for them mm-hmm. so they, they have no experience at it so I tried to convey a little bit of that you know uh, it, it it didn't have what was it like making it you know uh, it's like any other film when you're when when it's on the screen you know you're seeing this and yeah. when making it you're seeing the 360 degrees so you know guys just scratching their asses and you know <laughs> someone going for a soda and you know uh hold for plane that kind of shit so there's you're you're the characters are sitting there telling the girl to piss her pants and there's just some dude sitting in a chair eating lasagna or something yeah, that, like you know, eating a banana or something yeah. man just that's that's exactly right but 
you know, the uh, uh, plane of the screen is a different different uh, story. Yeah. One one question I want to ask was, was it written, like, I'm assuming it was written in the script, but when you saw the part where he gets his dick bit off, what went through your mind when you saw that? <laughs> because I saw that part of the movie, you know, it's like... I, I laughed only because, uh, you know, and, and Freddie is the one who staged that. Yeah. He blocked it out. It, when when Wes, Wes wanted that scene in there, and Freddie is the one who, who blocked it out, because Freddie had more actual production experience than anybody on the set. You know, he, uh, he, he knew more about how to get something on the film than, than anyone else. So uh, my, uh, I, I always talk, say that when I'm being interviewed because Freddie didn't get the recognition uh, that he deserved. And uh, as somebody who knows the, you know, who was there, I think uh, it's, it's incumbent upon me to do that. Um, so, you know, it's, it's just one of those scenes, man. It's just, it, it, again, it, 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 I, I've gone through a kind of a journey with it. Like when, it, when we saw it about three weeks before it came out, it was being released originally. And David and Freddie and I were at a screening at a post house, uh, Filmways post house on the west side of Manhattan. We walked out of there and we looked at each other and, you know, I'm paraphrasing, but we, we said something like, uh, hey, I'm really glad, you know, we're really glad all three of us met. Uh, we're going to be friends for a long, long time, but no one's ever going to come to see this piece of shit. And uh, <laughs> that was pretty much our, our sense of it. So the film gets released and uh, it begins to fulfill the mandate that it was made for, which is to be like part of a double feature at a drive-in, a, a chain of drive-ins in New England owned by a company called Hallmark Releasing. So that's why they put up the money for the movie. They wanted to make us, you know, like a scary slasher movie for Friday, Saturday, date night. So everything was going along according to that plan until Roger Ebert writes a three and a half out of four star review of Last House and all fucking hell breaks loose. Literally, no, literally like overnight. Right. Like one day I was Hess and I were sharing an apartment uh, after the film uh, on because I'd broken up with a girlfriend. I need a place to stay. So I went to stay with Hess at his place on the Upper West Side near Central, like on 85th Street, right, right by Central Park West. And um, we go out and party and hang out and go to sleep. And then the next day we get we get up and all over Manhattan are one sheets of last house. And we can't fucking understand it. You know, we were like, what's going on? And it was him with the machete. And it's, so then we, we got a hold of Sean and Sean said, uh, Roger Ebert wrote a review. And then he, we, we were able to get a hold of it. And we went, holy shit. And like literally overnight, everything changed. We're out of the drive-ins in mainstream theaters. And, mm -hmm. and that, that's when shit hit the fan. I mean, that's when yowza you know <laughs> so before i get on to some of your other uh credits now mark uh what tell us about this anthony hopkins story that you oh okay to. so so um <laughs> one of one of the gigs that i've had in my life is i've, I've written a few award shows right okay and uh i was where i was writing and co-producing a people's choice awards with my late partner sam denoff my writing producing partner sam denoff uh, uh i'm gonna say it's either 90, 91, 92. I don't know the exact year. I can't remember. 
But uh, on, on that show, uh, we were doing a tribute to Steven Spielberg, a lifetime achievement tribute to Spielberg. Michael Douglas was the presenter of that. And we had, you know, uh, a lot of, lot of guests. People's Choice Awards always draws big talent. They just, uh, you know, actors like to be on it. So we had a very heavyweight cast. I mean, Denzel Washington was there. Tom Cruise was there. Carol Burnett. Uh, and uh, my uh, Don Misher, the executive producer, comes into my office one day and he says, hey, I just booked Anthony Hopkins as a presenter. And we went, great. So that night I went home and I was married to my first wife then. And um, I happened to mention to her that Anthony Hopkins was going to be on the show. And this was, you know, Silence of the Lambs time. And she was the, like bonkers Anthony Hopkins fan. Oh, I got to I got to go. I got to go. And she would always go, you know, they have a table for uh, writers and their families and whatever. So that not a problem. So come the night of the show. Our table was uh, right by the stage so that I could get back and forth pretty easily backstage. It was on. We took over a studio a lot uh, uh, at Universal's shot on the lot. Gigantic place. So, you know, uh, uh, and, and they always build green rooms on these award shows that are backstage and they're just kind of like uh, curtained off areas, but they're gigantic and they're catered and it's just like, it looks like a nightclub in there, couch, lounges, chairs and bars and everything. And I can only, I can only tell you that, that whatever first class is of the day, that's what's there. So uh, I, I, I found myself at the bar talking to Steven Spielberg and Michael Douglas and Carol Burnett. Uh, Steven, I was talking to about the thing that we had written for him, Michael about the introduction he was gonna do with Steven and Carol was just socially because uh, I, had, I had known her through Sam, my late partner. So I look over at the doorway and I see a, a, a page bring Anthony Hopkins in and point to me. So Hopkins comes walking over to me with his hand stretched out. And he said, are you Mark? And I said, yes, I am. He said, Tony Hopkins, nice to meet you, Tony Hopkins. And we shake hands. And uh, he said, um, absolutely pleasure to be here. Says, uh, nods to Stephen, nods to Michael, nods to Carol. And then uh, says to me, uh, I've looked over what, what you've written. It's not much, but you know, do the best I can. Uh, pleasure to meet you. So I said to him, Listen, um, I have like a tiny thing to ask you. And he laughed. He said, what's that? And I said, my ex, my wife, I said, my ex wife, my wife is sitting out at our table. And he interrupts me, he says, by all means, bring her back. And, and I said, how did you know it was that? He said, oh, it's always that. <laughs> <laughs> I laughed. And so I go and I, I get my wife. And, and I bring her back and I bring her into the green room and she, she begins a slow process of shitting her pants when she starts to see <laughs> her, right? Like she, she's like, yeah, I could see her with every step. She sees somebody else more famous than the previous person she's seen. And then I kind of guide her towards the bar where uh, uh, Carol Burnett, Michael Douglas <laughs> and Anthony Hopkins and Steven Spielberg are standing. So I take her by the hand and I drag her over and Hopkins says, hello, 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 Tony Hopkins, pleasure to meet you. And they have a little conversation and she did, like breaks into Jackie Gleason. Ha, 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 
I let that go on for like 10 seconds. And I said, I can't, this is not happening here. I said, Jan, you have to go now. <laughs> it's time to go. And Tony's got stuff to do. So we leave and we go back. I put her back in her seat and she thanks me, uh, you know, and, and I, I fulfilled my husbandly thing. So now I come back in to the green room and Hopkins is in makeup. Carol's gone. Michael's gone. It's just Steven standing there. So I go back to the bar to where my drink is. And he said, uh, so that was your wife, huh? And I said, yeah. He said, she didn't want to meet me? What, what am I, chopped liver? <laughs> I said, no, Stephen, you're not chopped liver, but you ain't Hannibal Lecter either. So that's my Tony Hopkins story. <laughs> the next thing I wanted to talk to you a little bit about, within 10 years time, you went from doing a creepy horror movie to then you became a story consultant on the Brady Brides. And well, there's, a lot, there's a lot of stuff in between that, but go yeah. ahead. So I, uh, I'm a huge fan of Brady Bunch. So I was just wondering, you know, what was that like and having, uh, I know at that point you had to recast one of the, one of the brides uh, for that. And it was, uh, uh, it was Jan. Yeah, I know it was Eve Plum and Marie McCormick, I, I believe, did the whole I, show. I thought uh, Jan didn't want to return. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah. We, she was just written out. Okay. Yeah. She, she wasn't, she wasn't part of the show. Okay. So um, first thing I'll tell you about that is my parking space on Paramount. <laughs> oh, listen, my parking. So you wanted, this is how shit people know shit. My parking space on Paramount at that time was right next to Tom Hanks parking space. <laughs> He was doing bosom buddies at the same time. All right. So I used to, we used to park our cars right next to each other. So um, uh, it was okay. You know, it was a gig. I, I was on a deal. The, the, I got that show. I got assigned to that show. Mm -hmm. uh, I had a, a, a deal, writer's deal at Paramount at the time. So I was on the lot. I was, I, I was a contract writer at Paramount. So uh, uh, contract television, right? So um, they called me up. My agent called me up one day and he said, listen, uh, Sherwood Schwartz got an order for Brady Brides and uh, they need somebody like you on the show because there's nobody, you know, that way. And, <laughs> and um, I said, yeah, okay. So I went over and, and um, they're, they're very nice. The Schwartzes were very, very nice people. Um, I had to go to a meeting with, uh, to get, you know, to get officially a job, which I already had, but it was just process with Lloyd Schwartz, who was, uh, Sherwood's son. And they had a trailer that with their office were in a trailer in the Paramount lot. Lloyd's a pretty, was back then was a pretty heavy guy, big guy, mm -hmm. but he had a nose this big, <laughs> right? So I go into the meeting and uh, it's not fucking rocket science. He starts to explain the show to me, right? And like, I get the show in 12 seconds and he keeps on explaining because that was his gig. You know, he didn't know me, he didn't understand. Uh, he, so he, and it was his baby. So he talked about it. So <laughs> I'm thinking to myself, do I really want to do this? You know, I don't know if I want to do this. So if I really don't want to do it, I get paid anyway, because I'm on a deal. Yeah. The, the way this meeting is going to go is I'm either going to say something he doesn't like and he's going to tell Jeff Benson, who is the 
guy at Boston Paramount. Uh, man, we didn't really feel the vibe with him. It doesn't matter to me. My check comes that week anyway. Or I just go ahead and, you know, suck it up and do it and, and try to get the job. So I sort of tried to not get the job. Because uh, uh, Lloyd Schwartz said to me, uh, so what do you think after this uh, kind of book report on, uh, oral book report on what the Brady Brides was about? Hmm. And I said, well, I'm wondering. And he said, what are you wondering? I said, I'm wondering how a guy named Schwartz has a nose this big. <laughs> Figuring, tell me to like, get the fuck out of there, right? Yeah. <laughs> but oh no. <laughs> he says, well, when, you know, when we were 16 years old, my dad gave all, gave all the kids a nose job. I said, oh, okay. He said, can you start Monday? I said, I guess. <laughs> but he's a, he's a terrific guy. He's a lovely guy. Yeah. Yeah, lovely guy. I, I must say that. I, I mean, that's just a story, but he, he's not, he's a, they, were, they were very kind, nice mm -hmm. people. You also, you wrote uh, How Bugs Bunny Won the West. Um, what's it like <laughs> writing animation versus live action? And how is that experience being able to write oh. for Bugs Bunny? Good thing I smoke weed, man. Yeah. <laughs> it's a lot fucking easier. Yeah. Um, it, it, it was interesting. You know, uh, I got that gig. My my agent at William Morris uh, back then, J uh, Jane Sindel, uh, set me up with a woman by the name of Beth Uffner, who was at Warner Brothers. And uh, she was like the manager of comedy, comedy development at the time. And I, I was very, again, very lucky. My agents and managers, uh, the first season I arrived here, the first TV season I arrived, before pilot season, they sent me around to meet people, right? Because I had already, remember, I came on a credit. I sold a script to NBC, so I had a serious writing credit. Um, so uh, Beth, you know, they were looking for a job for me. And one day Jane called me up and said, uh, you want to write a... a animated live action special for CBS with Bugs Bunny. I said, fuck yeah. I said, Don't, you know, why not? That's, he's an icon. So yeah. why, why not get my name on a writing credit, right? So um, I went to Warner Brothers and met the guy who ran the animation, the Bugs Bunny, Daffy Duck kind of shit. His name was Hal Gear, or Hal Greer, but I think Hal Gear, I think his name is. So, Nice enough man. He had life-size plush animals of all Warner Brothers cartoon characters in his office. And he was a small guy. They were bigger than him. Okay. It was an odd meeting because it was like he was sitting at a desk and Daffy Duck and, you know, Bugs Bunny and Roadrunner and Wiley Coyote and all these characters were around. And I'm wondering, like, they fucking real? Are they real? Are they you know, do they have, do they have an opinion on whether I get hired or not? Does he like discuss this shit with them when I leave? I don't know, but I ended up getting the gig and, you know, rest is what it is. Um, so you also, you know, just looking over your credits, you, you've done a lot of, uh, like small stints on, 
uh, different shows you wrote, an episode of The Love Boat, an episode of yeah. Co-Ed Fever. How is that process of just coming in to write for an episode of something and then well, you're done? It's, it's um, fun. And you have, to, you have to manage your expectations because what happened when, when TV shows on the rare occasion now, they used to do much more when I started. That's how a lot of people got started. But now it's very, not, not that way, I understand. Um, you have to understand that no matter what you do, the staff is going to take your, your first drafts, for your first draft or your rewrite, and do what they want with it. And you just have to understand that's the nature of the beast. Mm -hmm. You know, you still get paid. You still get your residuals. Your name's still going to be on it. But the final product is going to be the result of some of the work you did and most of the work that the staff does. And that's for outside writers, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. That inside writers get a lot more latitude because they're inside the show. Okay. Mm. So, so, but that, does that answer your question? Yes. Okay. Um, well, and did you, uh, so I've seen episodes of the love boats and it's not like a serialized thing where each episode relies on the episode previously. Right. So were you told like on something like that, like you, here's like all the actors that we have at your disposal or like yeah. how, how I was is hired, that? I was, no, I was hired again. You got to remember that television and film on the professional level is a business primarily of relationships. Mm -hmm. Okay. Most businesses are businesses of employers and employees. Show business is a business that the foundation of which is built on relationships. So a pal of mine was the executive story editor of Love Boat. That pal was Lee Aronson, who went on to co-create Two and a Half Men with Chuck uh, Laurie. Okay, Lee and I were buddies from the comedy store and he and I actually were partners for, for a while. Mm -hmm. um, but this was pre that. So Lee was uh, working on Love Boat and he called me several times to uh, uh, do an episode. And I sort of didn't want to do it because it didn't pay as much as the other, you know, like a half hour episode they paid, you know, differently, it was on a different pay. And you know, for whatever reasons, it wasn't the most prestigious writing gig. It was, I was, and I was doing, I was writing pilots and, you know, I was kind of full of myself a little bit and I didn't want to do it, but I ultimately, you know, agreed to do a, a special episode that featured uh, Bernie Coppell and uh, an actress uh, whose name escapes me. Fuck, I just had it. Oh, shit. Bernie Coppell looks up. Can you look up one of you guys look up docs, D-O-C apostrophe S and new space E-X hyphen change, C-H-A-N-G-E. Bernie Coppell and she, she's, she was a, a dancer, Broadway actress who became a film actress. So um, what, what happened was I ended up, they, they, Lee called and said, listen, Ber Bernie Coppell, Julia Prowse, that's who it is. Okay. Julia Prowse, we are doing a special episode and, you know, I want you to write an episode. So I wrote it. And then, and then again, lucky motherfucker that I am, uh, um, <laughs> the day it's being broadcast, like early in the morning, I get a phone call. My phone rings and I pick it up and I go, hello. And I hear Aronson on the phone going, 
you lucky motherfucker. <laughs> you lucky, lucky, fucking lucky motherfucker. I said, what? He said, you haven't seen today's Variety or Hollywood Reporter? And I said, no. He said, you fucker. They took an ad out on each one's back page. And there it says, written by Mark Scheffler. I worked on this fucking show for nine months. They never did that to anything I fucking wrote. So I went down to Schwab's pharmacy and picked up a few copies of it and uh, had one of them framed. I have it somewhere around here. Uh, Too many accolades to remember which one it is. Yeah. Too much weed. (laughs) (laughs) So how does someone go about writing like a reunion show with Happy Days? Happy Days reunion show. Yeah. First first thing you do is screen every fucking episode. Mm -hmm. All 227 of them that's the first thing you do <laughs> i don't think i could watch that much happy days i like the show not that much though now they paid me a lot of money to do that let uh, me tell you. i mean that i mean that works too yeah and every time in that in that room that i'm watching that and i say i gotta get the fuck out of here <laughs> you know i got a wife i got kids they're paying me a lot of fucking money you know some people actually have to work for a living they're paying you a lot of fucking money to watch tv sit your ass down yeah. i actually had that conversation with myself so um, then what you do is why, you know, and I had a partner, Sam Denoff, uh, a terrific and famous uh, sitcom writer, uh, producer. So we would stop and talk to each other and key in on certain points. He and I kind of watched each episode and uh, uh, instead of trying to, to absorb every nuance of every little thing, which would have been, you know, choking, what we did was we looked at each episode as it fit into the overall over, overarching narrative of the show, right? Mm-hmm. And to, to what the show was about and how it started out to be one thing and then became something else. You know, we, we, we talked, to, we concentrated on that because we found, we thought that would be an interesting thing to, uh, to explore. Mm-hmm. And then from each episode, and uh, 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 and having talked to Gary, Gary Marshall, about a few things that, that we went, because you know, Sam and Gary were good friends, uh, uh, we interviewed each character uh, kind of organically, right? We, we kind of didn't just ask them the typical media questions. We, we got into the weeds a little bit more. And, you know, they're, they're all lovely people, you know, they're all, and I knew Scott from Charles in Charge, so that was easy peasy. Um, and that's, you know, and, and it was just a great show and, you know, made some friends and, you know, I run into Henry occasionally, I see, I've seen Ronnie occasionally, just nice, nice people, Henry Wrinkler, Ronnie, I know I keep saying the nice person, the nice, the nice, the nice, but the <laughs> truth of the matter, no, the truth of the matter is, for every one asshole I've met, I've met like 300 people who are just Really nice people who have unusual jobs. Yeah, you know, feel like you hear more of the opposite of that. Like when with what you hear in, you know, like on ET or whatever, you hear well, the opposite if, of that. If, if they didn't say that, what are they going to be called? The nice channel? What the fuck would watch that? Yeah, that's fair. That's true. <clears throat> well, so our time's almost up, but before I let you go, I wanted to ask you one more question. All right. And it is, you've done a whole lot of writing. You've, feels more like you've dabbled in acting. What, like, my question is, 
why did you decide that to do more writing or was that just kind of what happened and then how do you make that transition uh, well if you got a the way i made the transition was this <clears throat> last house on the left came out i told you that what happened and with the girls and everything and how it was but like everything you know anything that goes up has got to come down mm -hmm. so last house on the left left gets off the charts and out of the movie theaters and it's gone right it's it's a it's a recent memory and i'm back to being an out-of-work actor not an actor one of the four stars of a very controversial film and everything died down i i wasn't no women everything because i was an out-of-work actor in new york in the 70s right mm -hmm. so one night i was at a party and um I saw a guy kind of like me, average guy, looking average looking guy, talking to an extraordinarily beautiful girl. And she was kind of hypnotized. And I, I edged myself closer to them. And what I heard him saying was, yeah, so I'm, I'm almost finished with my outline. And as soon as I do, I'm going to start the, the first act. And, you know, then I'm hoping a month or two, I'll have a draft to send to my agent out in Los Angeles. And then, you know, I believe he'll uh, send it to the studios. And he started talking about writing and being a writer. And she was like into him. And they ended up leaving together. And I thought to myself, hmm, remember my priorities, right? Yeah. <laughs> I thought to myself, hmm, I could do that. I could tell girls I'm a writer. So I went out and I bought a bunch of books on writing, screenwriting, playwriting, television writing. I looked at them and I kind of just skimmed them, looked at the buzzwords, looked at the, you know, bold print, looked at the pictures and uh, began to develop a rap about being a writer. Mm -hmm. So um, I found my, and, and at some point it became a successful thing to do. Every time it was pretty much like foolproof, right? I, I had it down. So uh, uh, one day I find myself on, on, on an audition in a commercial production house, Enlee Lacey and Associates. Enlee Lacey was a commercial director who did the Mean Joe Green Coca-Cola commercial, a very famous football commercial. Yeah. And he won a Clio award for it. So uh, I, I had done a commercial for him and we'd become kind of, you know, distant friends, you know, not best friends, but friendly. So I'm talking to some girl in his lobby and I'm doing my writer's thing. And uh, um, he taps me on the shoulder and he says, hey, listen, as soon as you're finished with that, I wanna see it. I said, what are you doing? He said, I have an agent at William Morris in, in Los Angeles. Uh, uh, as soon as you finish that script, promise me you'll give it to me. So I said, let me talk to you privately. So I got him alone and I said, look, Lee, man to man, uh, I'm not writing anything. Uh, just doing that to get laid. Mm -hmm. And he said, is it working? I said, oh yeah, all the time. He said, then you're an <laughs> idiot. I said, what do you mean? He said, if you can make girls take their pants off by things you're telling them, you need to write that down on paper and then use it for a better purpose for mm -hmm. yourself. So I ended up writing the script that I was bullshitting about. I gave it to him. He gave it to his agent at William Morris and uh, uh, they sold it to NBC. One day I get a phone call from Lee and he said, uh, Stan came and sold it. They got television guys, sold it to NBC. 
you're going to have to move to California. And I said, okay. So the day I landed in LA, I had a, a car, an apartment, money in the bank, uh, an agent, and a very serious writing credit. That's how I made the transition. Damn. Better <laughs> than anything I've ever done. Yeah, I was like, I wish I could do that. <laughs> that. My friend, I have a bunch of writers' friends who, uh, 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 my, their nickname for me is The Myth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wish I could have that kind of luck and just <laughs> it's bizarre yeah, listen I, I, I freely admit okay 100% admit that it's fucking bizarre yeah that, that, that but it, I look back I'm, I'm writing a, a book right and, and uh, I look back and the story point <laughs> makers of the book are the stepping stones that just appeared in my life that enabled me to go from one place to another. Yeah. And that, and that, and that's what it is. You know, we all have dreams and aspirations, right? And you work and you work and you work and you work and you work, hopefully aiming yourself in that direction. Right. Luckily I was aimed in that direction at a very early age in life. Okay. Something happened to me that just put me on the path. So, so, um, I just, I've just been lucky, you know, it, every time I needed that stepping stone, it yeah. was there for me. All right. Well, uh, thanks so much for listening to this week's episode, everyone. And thanks so much to uh, Mark for coming on the show. Yeah, this was, this was awesome. Yeah. Good. I've enjoyed it. And you said you're uh, writing a book. I am writing a book called those seven years about, about seven years uh, in my life from the time I was 14 to the time I was 21. Uh, do you know when it's coming out yet or still well, figuring that out? I'll have a better handle on that when I finish it. I'm only about right. 70 pages into it. Okay. <laughs> That's fair. Um, if you liked the episode, come and tell us your thoughts and join the conversation. Uh, share this episode and let us know what you think on Facebook. You can also help us out by becoming a patron to the podcast. By becoming a patron, you get access to our private Discord server, our monthly movie review podcast, and you even get access to the unedited video version of the episode you just listened to. All the links are in the description below. All right, and that's it for this week. Uh, so join us again next time, wherever you hate to see it. Maybe. Possibly. Probably not. <laughs> we'll be there, sadly. Do we have to? Be violent about it. Be aggressive. Be angry. Well, not angry. Just be aggressive. No, don't, don't tell don't us you be, hate it. Don't don't be angry. Never mind. I was wrong. Positive reinforcement, but it can be aggressive. We do that. <laughs> I guess. I guess we do now. I didn't know that was a thing we did. <laughs> Woo! <laughs> <laughs>